It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. Today, we'll be exploring the costs and benefits of welfare systems, the subject of heated political and economic debate across the world. Arguments about how to reform welfare are ever-present, but now an exodus of migrants from across the Middle East and Africa heading towards Europe is igniting fresh tensions about the ability of existing welfare systems to cope with a major influx of people. With me to discuss the welfare conundrum is James Bartholomew, journalist and author of The Welfare of Nations, and Richard Cockett, The Economist's business editor for Britain and an Asia expert. James, you've travelled widely for this book across the world and looked at various welfare systems. Do they share many common problems? It was like Groundhog Day quite often. You know, you'd see the same problem again and again and again. I mean, there were some massive contrasts, but there were also many things that repeated. For example, not being able to fund pensions. The thing that I think people need to focus on and be realistic about is the fact that these welfare states misfire and indeed backfire in many cases, so that you have uh, actual increases in unemployment resulting from welfare states on a, on a huge scale. Mass unemployment has been common since welfare states were created. And so they've been designed, of course, to help people. But what, what welfare states in the, in, the, in the 20th century and since have, have, have failed to do so often is to combine being kind without having un, unintended negative consequences. Richard, do you think it's right for James to draw that link, whether it's causal or a correlation between mass unemployment and welfare states? Well, this is a big claim in the book, and it's one I think that certainly de- deserves to be probed. Because, But what you're basically saying is that in a lot of countries, uh, a welfare state means mass um, unemployment without actually setting out any other reasons why those countries might be suffering from either high unemployment um, or mass unemployment. I mean, there are plenty of examples of countries with good welfare systems, most famously Germany, which started modern welfare systems with the Bismarck Social Insurance Plan, which you refer to quite a lot in your book, which most people would agree today is one of the world's most prosperous and, and flourishing economies. It is the world's biggest exporter, and yet managed to keep up a relatively high level of welfare. So what do you think, James? I mean, are you missing various aspects of what causes unemployment or high unemployment mass unemployment. Germany is actually a prime example of of how welfare states have caused um, unemployment. During the uh, 2000s, the early 2000s, unemployment was rising higher and higher. It became a major political issue in Germany. And as a result, the government appointed a commission to investigate what could be done about it. 
and a whole load of reforms were introduced, making increasing conditionality, reducing the scope of the welfare state, making it more more tough to get benefits. And as a result of that, we have had the renaissance of German growth rates, the reductions in unemployment, which have been sensational, and you know, huge I- increase in human happiness, if you like, through controlling and and being more cautious about the manifestation of the welfare state. Your book takes us on something of a tour. The welfare of nations is the title rather than one specific welfare system. Which welfare systems around the world do you admire or think others could learn from? I'm always asked this question, and it's really infuriating because, uh, of course, no no country gets everything right. There are different areas of welfare states, so education and uh, healthcare and uh, and unemployment. All these things are are important, and some are better than others at different areas. But overall, if you really want to know, (laughs) I do. (laughs) um, I think the best welfare states are very contrasting countries in some in in their governance, namely Singapore and Switzerland one which you could argue is not very democratic and one which you could argue is the most democratic country in the world. And so in both of them are interesting in that respect. And both of them have very high conditionality on, on welfare benefits, for example. Richard, I don't know if you know much about the Swiss welfare state, but I know that you do know an awful lot about Singapore, where you lived and reported for many years. Do you share James's admiration of that particular system? Yes, I mean, it's got many virtues and especially contrasted with the West. And it's very interesting that the founding father, Lee Kuan Yew, he studied here, brought up here. And as you quote in the book, he was um, a student here in England when the welfare state was actually introduced by legislation in 1947. And at that time, he was he was quite a socialist, a Fabian socialist. And it was largely the example of what happened to the British welfare state that made him into, you know, an anti-welfareist economic liberal that he later became. Uh, so, but there is a couple of features of, uh, of the Singapore state. I mean, one of the, the, the things about the Singapore welfare state is people are given a great flexibility over their savings. They say they uh, put money into a central provident fund. And then in their 50s, they're given great control over it. They can buy their own flats with it, which is very good. Very high degree of home ownership in Singapore. But again, one of the, the, the tragedies of Singapore is, of course, many people don't make the right decisions on the central provident fund. And so um, it's, a, it's a sorry sight of lots of men, particularly men in their 70s, even 80s, working in terribly menial jobs, uh, working in um, as cleaners in the loos, in airports, etc., all over Singapore. So it is, uh, Singapore to me also was a warning about if you give people too much control over their own savings, etc., and the wrong decisions they can make. And there's lots of palpable evidence of that in, in Singapore, which they've now become very aware of. Well, I want to change tack a little and ask you both how much you think this is a moral, maybe even a moralising enterprise, as well as being a practical and economic one. Single parenting's a subject that gets a lot of attention in conversations about welfare here in Britain. But should the welfare state be involved in trying to dissuade people from single parenting where it's avoidable? I don't come at this from a moral point of view, um, except in terms of results. I don't start from the view that it's wrong to do this or right to do that. I start from the view, what are the consequences? And it is on single parents, which is a, is a massively controversial thing. I don't start from the view that it's wrong to be a single parent. I start from the point of view of what are the results? What are the results in the child? Uh, if the results for the child tend to be bad, then 
one should not be encourage single parenting. If it's bad for the mother as well, which it is, one should not be in favour of it. If it's bad for the father as well, one should even more not. So be many variables it. in yes, there. Yes, there are so many ways in which. I, I mean, yeah, but but it comes from but the data. I, it I'm, comes from the data. Well, does it come from the data? The data might well tell us, unsurprisingly that the vulnerable, poorly educated, single person, usually the mother bringing up a, a child, does not have, is not making the best start for her child in life, and that the Quite. educated single mother who makes often a choice about it, that the results are, are negligible in comparison to the traditional nuclear family. So I'm not quite sure the, the point where you're is this. this. If, you, if you accept that, which I do and you do, um, then the next question is, should what should welfare states do in their influence on behaviour if they should not influence people to become single parents? And that is what they did in Britain and America, but they did not do in, in Italy or Japan. Could, could you just, oh, that's a very interesting point, could you just describe how they encourage? Well, the state has a, an influence on the behaviour by the way it treats people who have a child outside wedlock. Uh, in Britain, in certainly in the 80s, 90s, a, a young woman who had a child outside wedlock would be given a flat. It would be paid for by the state. She would not be required to work uh, or seek work until the youngest child was 16. If she had another child out of wedlock, she would get a bigger flat. As a result of this, it didn't make it a great option, but it made it a much less bad option than, than otherwise would be the case. Meanwhile, in Italy or, or Japan, if you had a child outside wedlock, you would be, first of all, you'd be told, go to your family. Don't rely on the state. We're not going to give you a place to live. In Italy, you might be given a, a kind of hostel where you'd be with other lone parents, but it would be a much less attractive option. And as a result, the lone parenting rates in Britain soared to an incredible extent, but not so much in Italy and much less in Japan. Richard, do you accept that that's the way to go at this problem. But yes, I agree. I mean, I think it, 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 it does have a moral effect. I mean, I think it's very, very hard to work out cause and effects. But I think <clears throat> certainly in Britain, you know, it seems to be that you can get a lot of money off the state through various benefits. And that does often encourage people to have larger families that they otherwise might not, if they had to think about bearing the cost of that themselves. And in that respect, I think a lot of thinking on welfare states has shifted. That's my view. The thing I'd like to emphasize is that this is a worldwide phenomenon. The moment you get an advanced country, uh, economically developed, it has a welfare state. It's, it's, it's one thing follows the other. And they are changing the nature of our civilization. They are changing the way we live. They're making people more lonely. Where more people are divorced, more people are unemployed. The whole morality and way we live, more government control, all this is changing. And it's because of the growth of welfare states. I, just, I would just argue that there's an entirely contrary view in Asia, that, of course, Asia um, starts off with high degree of government controls in society through reasons nothing to do with welfare states. It's all about basic political control. And that's if you look at Vietnam or China, Malaysia, etc. Indeed, Singapore, that's actually where it comes from, because their problems originally were to do with ethnic violence. They were to do with uh, revolutionary situations, anti-colonial struggles, etc. Nothing to do with a welfare state. So what's happening here is they've, because of the, high, the existing high degrees of state interventions in society, they've also managed to intervene in terms of a welfare state in those societies. So I'd say it's very dangerous to, again, attribute all this to growth of welfare states. I 
think, in many countries, the politics proceeds for welfareism. Now, in Europe, the combination of ageing demographics in many countries and now a, a large exodus of migrants from the Middle East and Africa heading towards Europe and looking to set up new homes here, that's igniting national tensions about the limits of the welfare state and whether they can be absorbed by it. James, is to your mind, is this a problem coming down the track at us or is it an opportunity? Well, the, the argument I've heard over and over again is that it's a great thing to have immigrants because they are young, ambitious, thrusting, and they will work hard. And as a result, they will be able to pay the pensions of the elderly which haven't been properly funded. I regard this as, a, as, a, as an admission of failure, a pathetic uh, way of trying to run a country. Oh, let's have, bring in a lot of people because we, we've completely mucked up our pension schemes. Uh, it might still be the right thing to do. I think it's, it's a prescription, I think, Richard, that we've probably offered in Economist leaders yes, quite recently. Yes, no, we take quite a contrary view. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's that for all the reasons James says that you know it does attract you know, a lot of these people will be very you know hardworking entrepreneurs etc who b- will build um, the wealth of this country and a, and a lot of them are young etc often better skilled. I think it's an admission of failure and it's just knocking the problem down down the track. We'll have you both back in twenty years to find <laughs> out how it worked out. Thank you very much. Thank you, James Bartholomew and Richard Cockett. You've been listening to The Economist Asks with me, Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.